Welcome back, fans and fins, to our third Rising Tide Ocean podcast. While we remain sheltered in place or carry out essential work to fight the COVID-19 disease, let's also think about what we can do to fight the other major and related threats we face on an ever warmer, more crowded planet. Two women with solutions are Mary Crowley of Ocean Voyages and Vicki Nichols-Goldstein of the Inland Ocean Coalition, who we last spoke with on our pilot show. So let's meet these ocean champions. But first, a few words from one of our pod sponsors. Translation, free our captive cousins. Mary Crowley is the first person to deploy a system that's removed significant amounts of plastics out of the ocean, starting with 42 tons of nets in 2019. She now plans to remove at least 400 tons in 2020. She came up with what she calls her one-tag, many-nets theory that the ocean separates plastic by weight, size, and density. So where there's one, well, let's just meet the woman who I wrote up for Sierra Magazine as the ghost net buster. When did you first get the, uh, the salty urges? Well, I first got the watery urges on Lake Michigan and started sailing when I was about four years old. They have pictures of me at the helm of the boat steering my grandfather's 26-foot wooden boat. And uh, then I had my own small sailing dinghy that I grew up racing and sailing. And, uh, you know, my high school class said I was going to be a a captain right after uh, college, moving to Sausalito, and uh, started teaching sailing, and then I got involved in doing boat deliveries, and uh, they, that took me from being a crew and learning to navigate to being a captain. You know, over the years, having always cared a great deal about ocean conservation, um, I started hearing so many tales of people sailing in the South Pacific or off of Italy or between California and Hawaii and suddenly finding themselves amongst all of this plastic garbage. And, um, you know, I had these experiences myself, but I also had people from all over telling me of their experiences. And then as you read about it, there'd be you know, comments about, oh, well, this problem is so large that there's no way of solving it. And I guess my, I don't know, my Irish background or something, I I never think that there's no way of doing something. After that, I developed a think tank of naval architects and marine engineers and fishermen and oceanographers because it was my own belief that um, we had the right equipment in the maritime industry to clean up, that we just needed to adapt and innovate with our existing equipment, you know, so that a cargo ship or a big workboat that had a crane or excavator could effectively lift out many, many tons of ghost nets. And, and ghost nets were literally um, big commercial plastic 
monofilament uh, nets that commercial fishermen or pirate fishermen will release or lose in storms, and they continue to call ghost nets because they continue to fish the oceans, um, killing untold amounts of wildlife. Yes. One of the challenges is a lot of the right type of ships to do the large-scale cleanups that need to be done and that we're doing now um, can be expensive to operate because they have quite a few crew on board. Some of them use lots of fuel. We love using sailing cargo ships because that gives us a really low carbon footprint, and I'm a sailor anyway, so I love those. We had wonderful oceanographers who told us what their computer modeling told them in terms of this region should have heavier debris distribution. But the region would be pretty large, and so it would take time looking for the nets. And so I came up with the idea, if we tagged ghost nets um, and had that done by various vessels of opportunity, uh, ranging from people delivering boats after races to people going on family vacations to Greenpeace to Sea Shepherd, you know, anybody that cares a lot about oceans that's doing a voyage across this area. We try to distribute these GPS satellite trackers too that then come with a and they, they kind of look like fishing floats, actually, yes. or soccer balls that yes. AP described them as. Yes. And so they have tethers and carabiners. And so, you know, the people have to care because it's a little bit of effort to do a good job of tagging these, but a lot of people care. So these people would spot them, they'd get out on their dinghies or their ribs, their rigid hull right. inflatables. Right. They'd, they'd attach to one of these... Uh, and how, how, many, uh, how many of these taggers did you get out there? Well, we, we purchased 50. We're purchasing more now. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we got, you know, like 45 of them on vessels. And we got, I think, 22 of them deployed. So it was summer of 19 that you were finally ready to launch. You had these satellite trackers deployed. Right. And now you were going to save a fortune in hours and days at sea because mm-hmm. you knew where you were going to find the, the garbage, the ghost nets. Exactly. In summer of 19, you actually, proof of concept as you called it, you sent out a, uh, a sail cargo vessel out right. of Hawaii. Yes. And it's got a crew uh, that included... It had a crew of uh, uh, 14 including two drone pilots. And, yeah. and six of the crew were from Kiribati, which is literally a nation that's sinking beneath the waves because of sea level rise. So We only had 25 days on the vessel because this vessel, when it's not picking up uh, trash, is carrying cargoes to remote islands. So the crew is particularly experienced with lifting heavy things on and off the boat. And um, so we were, um, you know, 
hindsight, and we just didn't have the funding. But if we would have had enough money, we could have brought in double the amount because the cargo hold on board was filled all around about halfway. So we could have easily brought in 84 tons. Because you kind of proved the oceanographic theory. You went out there, yes. you found, I think one example was a somebody had tagged a 600-pound net. You sent up the drones to search, and soon you found a one-ton and then a, a four-ton monster Exactly. Net. This year, our, my goal, and I, it's a reachable goal, is to bring in 10 times the amount. So I want to, instead of 42 tons, 420 tons. So I've already um, uh, guaranteed three months to the cargo vessel we worked with this year. But I have three other vessels that would like to work with us. It was such an honor to work with the wonderful crew on um, Kauai, the the ship. I mean, and how does the crew feel about being garbage collectors instead of delivering goods? What, what was their they attitude? They loved it. Yeah, I mean, the the owner captain of the ship, Brad Ives, was uh, one night because uh, they didn't have the kind of internet capability to bring up the maps that I have on my computer of all the location of our trackers. So I uh-huh. was texting them locations, and late one night, Brad said, you know, of all my seagoing career, this is probably the proudest job I've ever done. All the crew were so happy. I mean, they'd worked incredibly hard, but I think everybody felt the importance of their work. And they felt they were on a mission that can be expanded and replicated and can really save our ocean. Well, I I have a fisherman friend that calls me up about five times a week saying, what can I do now? How can I help? I really want to be part of your expedition. I'll help you raise money, Uh, you know, because... People say, you know, I've spent my life taking things out of the ocean, and now I want to devote myself to taking this bad stuff out of the ocean to make the ocean a healthier environment. I mean, the people on the ocean really get the urgency of the issue. And I think that our cleanups, if we get managed to do a good job with articles and lectures and film will be educating people about what's going on which will touch their hearts and create changes. I mean one of the things I love about the whole plastics issue it's an issue that everybody can be part of the solution. I really think it's you know the years that I got to spend eight or nine months a year at sea that have fueled the energy I have to do this work. Because, I mean, I I felt so happy when we were unloading all of this toxic debris from the ocean and getting rid of it. It will never be back there. And, um, you know, we're going to do it 
on bigger and bigger scales, and we're going to help people around the world. And I hope everybody will help us in whatever ways they can by changing their behaviors, by contributing money, by educating other people around them. Our, our website we're going to be eventually revamping, but it has some great mm. film clips. And what is your website? It's oceanvoyagesinstitute.org. So, so I know you're going to scale up. I know you're going to promote the solution and make it happen, and I just hope that you have more time at sea for yourself because as, as pessimistic as I feel when uh, I read all the science— uh, whenever I'm in the water, I feel more optimistic. Oh, yes. No, I mean, that's it. The ocean is such a source of life. Inspired yet? Like I say in my book, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean, everything we do every day can help save the seas around us. Here's Inland Ocean Coalition founder Vicki Nichols-Goldstein with a bit more on her background, what the IOC is up to today, and how she stays salty. So where'd you start your ocean life? <laughs> I grew up in southern New Jersey, not far from the Jersey Shore in the Pine Barrens, and went there often. And I used to swim around the mud, collecting clams with my pop-up, and uh, there was always a belief that there was abundance, you, you take it, and then you give back. And that was the concept of my ocean conservation beginning. And this was on the Jersey Shore. On the Jersey Shore. I was just, just there flipping uh, horseshoe crabs over. The ones oh, that get turned God. over upside down. You flip them right side up, and there's thousands of them going in and I out of the water. I love those horseshoe crabs. I know. I, I keep saying to my family, we need to get back there and to see that mating of the horseshoe crabs. And it'll, it'll, it'll take a little bit to get us all back there. But, yeah, what a beautiful place that is. It's remarkable. And I remember when I was a kid, I would go to the Jersey Shore and I couldn't see my feet because of the ocean dumping. And then our colleague, Cindy, actually stopped the offshore dumping of the dredge materials and it really changed the entire coastal environment for that region. And I'm so grateful to her. Full disclosure, you and Cindy Zip of Clean Ocean I Action. I love both Cindy. On, <laughs> both on the board of Blue Frontier. So True. Jersey, when you fell in love with the ocean in Jersey, I wasn't too far away on Long Island yeah, Sound. And then, I did. And then you actually got into it professionally. I did. I went to the College of the Atlantic, and I got a degree in human ecology and worked for their Natural History Museum and then became the director and started the Field Studies Program for Children and then just it continued it was like i it, it the ocean i felt like it was in my cells it just really was part of me and when you first got to boulder aside from being stalked by a mountain lion <laughs> you discovered a lot of dive shops and, and it turns out colorado is a big diving community yes actually colorado has the largest diving certified diving community of any inland state in the country and I'll tell you, it is really fun because there's a great diving ethic, and we have helped to co-create a, a concept called Blue the Dive, where people are working with us through the dive industry shops to say, hey, let's reduce our plastic, let's make sure that our divers are protecting coral reefs, 
and that they are conscientious about what they do when they dive and where they go. So it's really been a fun collaboration with the dive community. So it started as a Colorado Ocean Coalition and grew into the inland. Tell us a little of that history. Well, I started the Colorado Ocean Coalition up in 2011, and we did a number of events locally bringing in our iconic ocean people, like the Cousteaus and Dr. Sylvia Earle and you, David Helvarg. And it was really neat to actually try to get a voice for oceans inland. And then we transitioned to doing more activism, and we started bringing people to the, uh, the conference that you run in D.C., uh, the Blue Vision Summit. And other people started saying, hey, we wanted to put together a similar program that you have in Colorado. How do we do it? So we helped other communities start developing chapters. And then, oh my gosh, I got a lot of pushback in 215, 216, people saying, we don't want to come under Colorado. We need a bigger umbrella. So that inspired us to create the Inland Ocean Coalition that is just a broader concept. And now we have 15 chapters, and we're really trying to save oceans from the inland. But to be fair to the Colorado Ocean Coalition, <laughs> you would bring growing delegations. The last Blue Vision Summit we had our Healthy Ocean Hill Day, you had like 25 people from Colorado. We did. I and, mean, we are the rocking chapter. And what, what was the reaction of elected officials from Colorado when these people show up on their own dime, on their own time to talk about the oceans? It was really astounding. People, the congressional leaders and their aides were like, oh my gosh, we had no idea. So many people from Colorado cared about the ocean. And that is what we are really trying to promote, that sense that, yes, we live in the middle of the country. We're in the Rockies, but we still are passionate about our oceans. We need our oceans, and it was really neat to see the transitions of like, what to fantastic. How can we work with you? And how do you do your water time from Boulder? I am a big paddleboarder. I don't have an ocean in my backyard, but I certainly have a number of reservoirs, and I get in them, and I paddleboard, and I'm so lucky. I have a saline outdoor pool where I water run three times a week. So I kind of squint and think I'm in the ocean. Hi, my name's Elise Landon. I live on the beach in San Diego. I'm the first listener to subscribe to Rising Tide. Special thanks to Blue Frontier, Studio K May, and Ocean Conservation Research for making Rising Tide possible. Hope you've enjoyed Blue Frontier's Rising Tide Ocean Podcast. Don't forget to tell your friends about Rising Tide, and also subscribe yourself wherever you get your podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, tear Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier